0: spots we love to have you It'd be great to meet you spend some time with you um, you can see either Aaron and I we would love to to have you and host you tonight um, and to entice you a little bit we're gonna have barbecue at my house so I don't know about where you're going but um, if you're already going somewhere else you can't switch houses but if you're not going somewhere we would love to have you for some some good old southern style barbecue well back in my senior year of high school I remember the fall of uh, 1989, and November 9th, 1989, there was a hastily called press conference in eastern Germany, a guy named Gunther Schabowski. He was the party boss in East Berlin, a spokesman for the Soviet Socialist Union Party, and he had been given information about an update that he was supposed to provide about some new regulations about border crossings, there had been some difficulties with east germany and uh, relating to um, czechoslovakia and some of their bordering countries and they had wanted to appear conciliatory and so they said we're going to be opening some borders in the in west to, to western germany and what they really planned was to say they were opening it but really still provide an extreme amount of regulations so that effectively there was no change unfortunately, Schabowski hadn't been involved in any of those decisions, and so when he went to communicate it, he was just handed a note at the last minute, and he kind of muddled it, and he said, a new law has been drafted, and it will allow permanent immigration at any border crossing. And when the shocked reporters, they asked, it was, a, I think it was 6 p.m. in East Berlin, shocked reporters, they asked, they said, well, what does that mean for the wall? And... And when does that take place? And he says, Well, as far as I know, um, it's effective immediately without delay. And then he didn't answer clearly when they asked what it meant for the wall. And then he just abruptly ended the press conference at seven o'clock at night. And then right after that, he had scheduled an interview with Tom Brokaw in, from NBC. And he reported that East Germans would be able to immigrate through the border and all these regulations would go in effect immediately. But he got it wrong. No one had told them that news. This good news, though, of this border crossing opening up, it spread like wildfire immediately. All the news outlets picked it up. All the, all the TV and radio stations in West Germany, they picked it up and they broadcast it. And primarily, the people in East Germany used the Western stations as their source of news. They didn't trust their own news sources. So all of East Germany, all of East Berlin found out within about 17 minutes By 8 o'clock, it was the headline news story all across the world, at least in the West. You see, Moscow was a few hours ahead, and so it was already nighttime there, past the news hour. Later, a TV anchorman, he declared on a broadcast being seen in East Berlin, this November 9th is a historic day. Remember, this is all a mistake. But he said, this is a historic day. The the GDR is announced that starting immediately, as borders are open to everyone. The gates and the walls stand wide open. That was what he reported. So, right away, hundreds within minutes, and then thousands, and then tens of thousands flocked to six different border crossings in East Berlin. And they began demanding they be let across. The border guards didn't know that. They were unprepared. They hadn't gotten any such news. And they didn't know what to do. They kept trying to frantically call their superiors back in Moscow. And they were given really vague answers. Just deal with this like, well, you we always deal with this, because they were unaware of what had been happening. And they were overwhelmed. They were confused. They didn't have clear instructions. At the Bornholmer border crossing, the Stasi secret police commander, he had gotten news earlier that week that he might have a life-threatening case of cancer. So he was kind of bummed out, discouraged, thinking about the end of his life anyway. Then he was on a conference call where he was listening in, to his superiors talking about him. And they spoke negatively about him. He got angry. He hung up. And he decided, nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm just going to open the border. So without permission, he went, didn't want to take the risk of uh, safety towards his men. He was, he was concerned. There was only 60 people across his border crossing, and there were tens of thousands. And so he opened the gates at 1045. At the same time, another commander heard about it and opened their border gates. The Western TV crews had already gotten this news thinking it was reality and were filming. Cars started streaming in. People started streaming across. But because of the time difference, the, the leaders in Moscow and Gorbachev had no clue this was all happening. They were all sleeping. They didn't get the news till later. But by then, it was already too far gone. The news had spread. The movement was already sweeping through Germany. The wall started getting destroyed that night. There's images of people climbing up on the wall. I remember seeing on TV? 11 months later, after this good news spread, 11 months later, which is astounding, you see, from 1945 until 1989, East Germany had been divided. But in 11 months, a short time, something dramatic happened. East Germany was reunited with West Germany, all because people heard some good news. And they passed it on really quickly. And so this comedy of errors, in a sense, but really a good news, it spread to everybody who needed it, and they told everybody else they knew, and it became a groundswell. What would you do if you had good news? What would you do if you had good news and knew people who needed to hear it? As you think about that question, I want to read a biblical account in 2 Kings 6. It begins with some bad news first. 2 Kings 6, 24. It says, Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria. And as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, that's the bad news. They were besieged. They were surrounded by their enemy. They were desperate. Now let's read how the good news comes. Second Kings 7. But Elisha said, Elisha the prophet of God said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make the windows in heaven, how could this thing be? But he said, you shall not see it with your own eyes. I mean, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now, come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die." And they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. When these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid them. Then they came back, and they entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. And then they said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. And then we read later on, skipping down to verse 15, after the king sent men to find out if what they said was true. In in verse 15 of chapter 7, it says, So they went after them as far as the Jordan. And behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this true account of your salvation, your miraculous deliverance that you brought to your people because of your great love. God, thank you that you still bring deliverance, that you have brought the ultimate deliverance. Lord, this was just but a picture of the ultimate true deliverance to come in Jesus, and you have brought us true deliverance in him. God, I pray that we would rejoice in you, that we would enjoy the goodness you have brought to us. And God, I pray that this would be a day when we realize this is a day of good news. And Lord, let us share the good news with everybody around. God, I pray that you would help all of us to hear and respond. God, I pray that you would give us joy in you. And God, I pray that you would enable me to speak by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what would you do if you discovered something good like the riches that the lepers discovered? What would you do if you were sitting on good news like they had a new people who needed to hear it? I think what we see in this account, this is a true story, a true account. It's not a parable, but I believe it is actually indicative of God's character and nature, indicative of what was to come. You see, Jesus said in Scripture that all of the Scriptures speak about him. So we see some things, we learn some things in this account, and we learn that God provides salvation. God provides salvation. It didn't come through any man's hand. God provides salvation, and those who need it, who know it, need to share the good news with those who need it. Those who know it need to share the good news with those who need it. The people in Samaria, they were surrounded by their enemy. They were in trouble. They had no real earthly hope, right? except surrender, which meant enslavement at best. They were physically hungry. They were tired. They were thirsty. They were desperate. This, it's a true story, but it's a picture of the condition of the people in rebellion to God. People today, they might not be physically surrounded by an enemy, but the world is surrounded by the enemy of God. You see, the, the first truth that we want to see in this passage is that people are desperately in need. People are desperately in need. That's what we see right away. People desperately in need. As a little background, Israel at this time was a divided kingdom between the northern and southern kingdoms and Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel and the king of Syria, he wanted to conquer Israel but Israel, uh, Syria was a walled city. It was too hard to overcome. It was too well fortified. So the king of Syria decides, I'm gonna lay siege to the city. So laying siege meant surrounding the city at a little bit of a distance so that the archers couldn't reach them so they were safe but it meant that There was no way for them to be fed, no way for them to get water, no hope, no no ingress, no egress, no way in and out. Um, He was just going to wait and starve them out, and his plan was working. The enemy was surrounding God's people, and they were desperate. They were starving. They were selling something that was equivalent of about a quart of something that was called dove's dung. We don't know if that was actual dung or not, but you get the idea even if it was a nickname for an unpleasant vegetable, maybe yes, that's that somebody came up with that. Well, that might be true. But whatever it was, it was unpleasant, and it was selling for five pieces of silver for a quart. They're selling the head of an unclean animal that they weren't supposed to eat in the first place, and they weren't supposed to eat a head anyway, and they were selling the head of an unclean animal, it says, for 80 shekels of silver. And, and the point is, their, their plight was desperate. They were surrounded by the enemy, they are desperately in need. They had no hope no relief they began to do horrific things in their desperation we're not going to read about now you can go back and read about the account but what it shows is, is people will look to whatever sources they can find to try to find hope and satisfaction and 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 these lepers that we see in the story they desperately need to they were good as dead because of the disease these four lepers they were living in a, likely in a colony outside the gates, and they had been relegated to being right outside of the city gates because they were surrounded by the enemy, and now the siege was underway. They had no way of getting food even from the city, even if there would have been any. They were surrounded by the enemy too. They were cut off. They were desperate. They knew it, and they were willing to risk their lives on the remote chance they might be spared by their enemy, which really probably wasn't likely. And so they, in an effort, they thought, well, we've got nothing to lose, and so they went towards their enemy. Now, now it's a sign, and it's meant to communicate something. People are desperately in need, and today, what I think it's meant to communicate to us is people are desperately in need spiritually. They're people who, are in rebellion to God, they are, because of their sin, in a desperate condition, whether they realize it or not, they're surrounded by the enemy. They are Hungry with no way to feed themselves, they are thirsty with no way to drink. They have no ability to provide, and so so many people around us in our neighborhoods, in our in our workplace, the people we see shopping, in school, going about their business, surrounded by the enemy of their souls—the God of this world, who seeks to steal, to destroy, to kill. Many people willing to sell their souls to get happiness, to seek fulfillment, things that won't satisfy, to turn to all kinds of detestable things become more and more depraved, seeking what they want out of desperation. Some people are blind. Now, the reality is we're all blind. We don't even know they're in danger from the enemy. Spiritually, we're no different than the physical condition that we see here. Paul tells of the condition of all of humanity. He tells about it in Romans 1. How does, how does humanity get to that point? He talks about it in Romans 1:19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, Because God's shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived for ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they were without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It describes how people go from inherently knowing that there is a God to denying their accountability to God as their creator and becoming darkened in their hearts. The people in this account actually had become so dark, and they were like, God's not going to deliver us. And the king himself is saying, you know, if if God even hears you, because why are you calling out to me? I can't deliver you if God's already forsaken you. Paul continues to let us know in Romans 3 about the desperate condition of humanity. Romans 3.10 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. All of Scripture speaks of this condition of humanity and in desperate need and in many different ways. Apart from God, there's not hope. Apart from God, we're desperately needed. Apart from God, we're surrounded by our enemy. Apart from God, we are hungry and thirsty. All of us were once dead in sins, unable to save ourselves. That is our condition. We're surrounded by the enemy, starving, in need of the bread of life, with no way to feed ourselves, in need of the water of the river of life, with no way to drink on our own. But what we see through this account is when People are desperate is when God provides a way of salvation. God provides salvation. That's what we see. We see God providing salvation. It's we see a revelation of his character. Here it's physical provision, but really his character all throughout, whenever he provides physically, it's meant to be an evidence, a sign of his character and nature. When he parted the Red Sea, when he provided for the children of Israel, he provided manna in the wilderness, it was meant to be a picture of him providing the bread of life. And here what we see is a true account of God providing salvation. Salvation. God providing his supernatural salvation. Not only are people desperately in need, but when people are desperately in need, God provides his supernatural salvation. And that's what we see. It's not likely that the lepers had heard the word of the Lord, but the Lord of the Lord had been given. These lepers are so desperate, though, they sneak over to the Syrian camp at twilight. Can I picture that in your mind? They're thinking, oh, We're desperate. But we're also not completely dumb. We're going to sneak over and see what's going on over there. So they go over, and then shockingly, they don't find anyone. And then, and then verse 6 describes what's happened. Look in, in verse 6 of chapter 7. It says, For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses. This is supernatural deliverance. This can't be explained. It says, They heard the sound of a great army. They said to each other, Behold, the king of Israel is hiding against us. The kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt have come against us. So They fled. God puts his enemies to flight supernaturally. They fled the twilight. They abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys. They left the camp and fled for their lives. God brings about his deliverance, his salvation supernaturally. That's the kind of God he is. He makes the enemy flee without any of the army lifting a finger, without anything the Samaritans could attribute to themselves. God brings about supernatural deliverance It was through the Lord alone so that they would not trust their works. They would not trust their ability. They needed to see. The people of Israel needed to see in their rebellion that it was hopeless. When they turned away from God, their life was hopeless apart from God. They were completely desperate. There was no way. There was no hope apart from God. And they needed to see that salvation comes from the Lord and the Lord alone. Not through their cleverness. Not through their strength, their works, their abilities, they need to see that in God alone is their salvation. And we need to see that too. They'd been hopeless. They'd turned to their own means for survival. You know, so often we look to our own means for our survival, for our strength, for deliverance. Sometimes we're tempted to think that our works, our ability, our cleverness, our, our wisdom, our strength is what will deliver us. And we're lulled into that deceptive way of living. And God wants us to see that he provides supernatural salvation, and it is apart from anything we could do. This it, account's meant to show us that salvation comes from God alone. There's nothing in the account prior to chapter 7 to indicate that in any way that the people had turned or that they had looked to him for deliverance, but God provided it when they were his enemy. They were his people, but they were in rebellion. They were acting like enemies. And the king of Israel, in 2 Kings 6.27, it says, and he said, when somebody cries out to him for help, they look up on the wall, they see the king walking around, they say, you know, would you help us? And he looks down and he says, if the Lord won't help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And that was sarcasm because there was nothing in the threshing floor or nothing in the wine press. He stopped hoping in God, he stopped believing in God, and yet God mercifully, lovingly, provided what they did not deserve. So often the world blames God for the troubles they're in. Not seeing the biggest trouble we're in is because of sin. And God's merciful to people, even when they're not seeking him and they're blaming him for their troubles. And then we read in the first verse of chapter 7 that, that God sent his word of good news, his word of salvation to Elijah the prophet to speak his word about his deliverance. And all throughout the Bible, God has actually spoken his word of deliverance for his people to look to him and that he will provide a way of salvation. And yet it seemed too good to be true. It seemed unbelievable. And that's how the captain of the guard responded, this just can't be true. This isn't believable. If God opens the windows of heaven, there's no way that's going to happen. And maybe you feel like you're too dead and too far gone and you sin too much. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And yet, we see the lepers found the unbelievable that God had delivered them, miraculously, supernaturally, provided salvation. And that night, can you imagine their confusion, their amazement? They're going into the camp, and they're a little trepidatious, and they're they're hesitant. They're, they they and, and all of a sudden they look around. There's nobody there. They're confused. What what in the world? Is this a trap? And they look around. They go from tent to tent, and they've left everything there. Their their meals are half eaten food's left out, the clothes are there, there's silver, there's gold, they're really confused and then that confusion turns to delight and, and then they go from extreme hopelessness, hopelessness to extreme provision in a moment and, and then they're in this tent and, and they ate, it says they ate and they drank and, then, and they're, they're eating, they haven't eaten in a while probably, they're, they're drinking, they're satisfying their hunger and their thirst and then they carry away silver and gold and clothing and, and I love this picture, they squirreled it away. They take this provision and they take it and they hide it somewhere. I don't know where they're hiding it, but they hide it somewhere. It says they come back like pirates. They come back again and they carry off the good things to another, from another tent. God provided his supernatural salvation. They're enjoying the spoils of God's supernatural deliverance. And it's not that good things aren't to be enjoyed. They're, the good things were to be enjoyed. They're meant to eat and drink and rejoice in God's provision for all their needs. That's why God provides salvation. Because he loves us. He wants us to enjoy his lavish goodness to us. Even today, for us, when we were reviling God, when we were unclean, we were unable to come to him because of our leprosy of sin. He loved us. Provided a supernatural way of salvation for us, completely apart from anything we could do. Romans 3 explains reality like this. says, Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show... God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. But what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. What goodness we've received. Unmerited has nothing to do with our our, our earning, our law-keeping, or any other thing we could do. We've been saved by the grace of God because of his love for us. Not because we deserve it, but he wants to provide salvation. And I like how the Apostle John puts it when he writes about God's motivation for saving us. We, We know the scripture well, but sometimes we think we forget it. God's motivation for saving us in John 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world. world of those who are dead set against him. For God so loved those who are dead set against him, the world, that he gave not just crumbs, he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, those who were rebelling against him, who deserve condemnation. He loved them and didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The motive for God saving us was his own love. Not our works, not our looks, not our deserving, not our merit. Those who were dead set against him, the reason he gave his son was because he chose to love us. That in him we shouldn't perish but have eternal life. We've received a treasure in Jesus. And it's come through our simple acceptance and belief as provision of salvation through Jesus. The king of Israel, He, he didn't believe what the lepers told him at first. He was suspicious. He thought this must be kind of some kind of catch. It must be a trap. It seemed too good to be true. So he tells his servant and he says, you know, what's going on here? It's, it's, they're probably going to wait in ambush for us. And his servant says, well, let's, let's send and see. And so they do. And in verse 15 of 2 Kings 7, it says, So they went after them as far as the Jordan. Behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. What they discovered was that God provides and provided everything they needed. His word of prophecy is true. What God says is true. What he says about his salvation, about his provision is true. And it always is, whether that's what God says about us physically or God says spiritually. What he provides is true. You see, our physical need is actually meant to point us to our spiritual need. The, The people of Israel needed to see that they didn't just need God physically, but God provided for them. They needed to see. They needed Him spiritually. He had done exactly what He told Elijah to prophesy at just the right time. He conquered their enemy. He plundered them. Instead of famine and death, they were given treasures and, and all that they needed. Their thirst was quenched. Their hunger was satisfied. Has your thirst been quenched? Has your hunger been satisfied? And this true account it illustrates the spiritual reality of God. It illustrates that all of God's word is true. His promise of deliverance from the very beginning when he cursed the serpent for deceiving Adam and Eve. In Genesis 3.15, he says, he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Speaking of the deliverance to come, and God's been faithful to bring about every bit of his word. His prophecy in Isaiah 61, Jesus stands up in Luke 4.16, He says, and he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolls the scroll. And he turns to whatever it said for where we find Isaiah 61. And he found the place where it was written. It says in verse 18, the the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me. Listen to this. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, sitting down indicating it, he was done. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, There's liberty for the captives. Today, there's good news for the poor. Today, a recovery of sight to the blind. Today, setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Today, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor or his grace. That's what God provides true liberty. He he provides recovery of sight to the blind, good news for the poor. Liberty for the oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, his grace. If you see the truth of the good news about Jesus Christ, that means he's given you sight. You were blind. If you've heard the good news of the gospel and it penetrated your heart and you received it, that means that he opened up your ears to be able to see, and now you've received the favor, the grace of God. Forgiveness of sins because of the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus in our place. And and he's not only done that, he's clothed us in his righteousness. He's made us God's children. He's given us everything that belongs to Jesus. He has promised in Jesus to us. We're joint heirs of the inheritance of the Son. Think about that. That's astounding. All the treasures. I'm talking about earthly treasures. But all of the treasures that Jesus earned belong to us. And one day we'll receive that inheritance in heaven. We just got to go out and get it. We have to wait for that day. He's given us all that we need for living a godly life. Life, What treasures we have. And the treasures that we're not meant to keep to ourselves, that we're meant to share. We're meant to rejoice in them. We're meant to find joy, to receive joy, to taste and see that God is good. But those who know the good news need to share it with those who need it. People are desperately in need. God provides his supernatural salvation. And then those who know this good news need to share it with those who need it. God's given you his good news to share if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are one of his people who've been delivered, who've been set free. I want you to picture in your mind this picture, this image of the lepers. They were were gleefully enjoying the goodness of God. I can just picture these, these sore ridden people in tatters who were hungry and they're probably leaping around enjoying God's goodness, his deliverance, and they were probably, they were taking something for themselves, they were delighting, they're probably saying things to each other like, hey, come here, look at this, can you believe it? And oh my goodness, taste this, it's delicious. I haven't had fruit like that and it was good. And God's goodness and his salvation and all the benefits of our salvation are meant to be personally enjoyed. And delighted in. And Jesus even spoke to that of the kingdom of heaven. It's like a treasure. When somebody finds it, they take it and they, they, they want to keep it something wonderful, but it's, it's not meant to be kept to ourselves, it's meant to be shared with those who need it. This good news is like a treasure that we, we're going to give all to get it, and then we're meant to give it away. And it brings glory to God. By the way, this is, it's good to rejoice in God's goodness. If you're a Christian, we're, we're meant to rejoice in what God's done. We're called to rejoice in goodness. And all throughout the Bible, um, I was looking at all the different times the Bible talks about rejoicing in, in God's goodness, rejoicing in what he's done, rejoicing in his provision. And, in, and it was over 150 passages in just 66 books where we're encouraged to rejoice in his goodness and his deliverance and his salvation all the benefits. And, and, and I love the, the image that we have from David. He does that. He, he was set free. He, he made some, some poor decisions and he ends up in the camp of Abimelech and then God delivers him and he comes out and he starts singing in Psalm 34. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see. The Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints. Those who fear him have no lack if you were with us as we closed out the book of Revelation a few weeks back in Revelation 19.7, it speaks of us rejoicing in, in Revelation 19.7. It says, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with the fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Rejoicing is good. His salvation is good, and we're meant to enjoy it and rejoice in it and enjoy it for ourselves. But in the account in Kings, I, I love that, that picture. At some point, after they'd gone to the second tent and they were realizing they were enjoying things, at some point, one of those lepers stopped and they looked around at each other. And they realized there's just four of us here, and there's way more than we can take, way more than we can enjoy. And they must have remembered that all of Samaria. Israel was holed away in the walled city of Samaria. Their friends, their relatives, their co-workers. So many people just a little ways away were desperately in need. And they knew they needed to share that good news. And they actually call it good news. I love it. In 2 Kings 7, 9, they said to one another, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. Implication is meant to be shared, and so they do that. They go and share. It's their delight. There's plenty for all. They tell the news to the gatekeepers. And then... The news spread. I just know a couple of things about this delivery of good news, by the way. They were lepers. They were lepers. God gave his good news not to just people in need, but people desperately in need who were desperately sick, those who were poor and outcasts. What qualified them to share in this good news was discovering it and receiving it for themselves. There's no qualifications. God provided it. And all they needed to do was to receive it, to to, to have it, to eat of it, and then share it. And and then I I love just thinking about what qualifies them to share the good news. Well, nothing qualified them. They were outcasts. Society, they weren't supposed to even go near people. And, And what qualified them to share the good news was that discovering of the good news. The good news is what qualified them and possessing that was what qualified them. Don't think that somehow you can't share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you're too poor, you're too worthless, you're too undeserving, you're too much of an outcast, you're... because that's precisely the kind of people God's able to use. God can use, and he does use anyone, but he delights in using the weak to convey his good news, and what we see is that they share what they experience, what they discover. They... We need to share the good news of the world around us. People are desperately in need, whether they know it or not. Who's God surrounded you with? Who's God put in your life? Who are the people in need around you? They may be blind, they might be deaf, might think they don't need Him, they might look like they have everything, but they really have nothing that they truly need. They're thirsty, they're hungry, they're desperate, they're poor, they're blind. They need to know that we have a creator, that we're responsible to him. They need to know that we've sinned against him. They need to know that God's provided a son, his son as a substitute for us to live a perfect life in our place. They need to know that he provided Jesus to die the death that our sins deserve. They need to know that he provided Jesus to be raised to the life that we need that can be found only in him. They need to know that God's provided salvation in and through the person of Jesus. They need to know those treasures. They need to know that in Him we receive life everlasting, all the riches of Jesus Christ. It's not about our worthiness. It's not about our ability. It's about the good news of deliverance of the salvation of God that He provides. He supernaturally has provided salvation for all who believes. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, it's the power of God for salvation. You're not the power of God for salvation, but the gospel, the good news is the power of God for salvation and all you need to do is share it. As we close, I want to We're going to receive communion today. So we're going to ask the ushers to go ahead and come forward. And the band, you can go ahead and come up as well. Be prepared. Why we want to receive communion today is we want to begin with remembering our condition apart from God. We want to begin with remembering. You can begin to pass it out. It would be great. Thank you. We want to begin with remembering our condition that Jesus had to die. He had to die for us. There was no other way possible for us to be reconciled to God. There was no other way for us to taste and see God's goodness apart from Jesus. There was no other way for us to be fed. There was no other way for us to be delivered. There was no other way to us for us to be set free. There was no other way for us to be made clean. There was no other way for us to find the rivers of the water of life in him. Apostle Paul, he wrote about what we're to do in communion in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. That's a symbol. This gluten-free this, this cracker is a symbol of... The body of Jesus broken for you. And so Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This, this cup of, of juice, this is to be a remembrance of Jesus. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to remember some things personally. I want us to remember what God has saved us from. If you are a Christian, we would love for you to partake of communion together with us, celebrating the Lord's death until he comes. And we want to remember the bad news first. I want to remember the condition that we were in, that we were lost, that we were dead, hopeless, surrounded by the enemy, no way to get food, no way to get his water, in need of the bread of life, in need of the manna that only God can provide, in need of living waters, the water that flows from the rock who is Jesus. And he has provided, just as he said. He's provided great salvation. When you were in bondage to your own desires, you were in captivity to sin, when, when we were God's enemy, when we were blind, when we were naked in shame, we had no hope, surrounded on every side. When we were thirsty in need, God's given us the water of the river of life in his own spirit. When you were spiritually hungry, God has given us his son as the bread of life. Let's eat the bread Remembering where our hope is. Jesus, thank you that you supernaturally provided a way for us to be fed. And you say that we must feast on you. Something we can't do on our own. God, in you, because of you, because you've opened up our eyes, we're no longer blind because you've loved us. You've set us free, and now we can partake of you, and you become our food. God, may we look to you, may we hope in you, may we rejoice in your provision. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, we've received a new and a better covenant, a covenant that's not based on our performance. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our merit. Let's drink the juice together. And then let us do what verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11 says: says, For often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes the actual action of doing this is proclaiming the Lord's death but we're also meant to proclaim the good news of his death as we go out from here today and and that's our goal our our desire is to grow as a congregation our mission is to be disciples who are are growing and then we're making disciples in order to do that we we need to do a few things we need to reflect on where God's been good to us rejoice in that and then share that good news with other people and we need to pray for boldness. Maybe we look for opportunities. Maybe we plan, and then might we share what God's done simply and clearly. Just sharing His good news with our mouths. You don't have to be theolo- theologically trained. You have to know and believe the truth about Jesus and share what you've experienced. God provides salvation, and those who need it, who, who know it, need to share the good news with those who need it. Let's rejoice. Let's not keep it to ourselves. Let's share the good news. And now let's stand and sing together about his good news. Amen? Let's stand.